Good afternoon. Uh, like, uh, like Ashley said, I'm James Spencer. Uh, we've been coming to Valley Brook for a while now, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you this morning about Psalm 137. Uh, Brian, Pastor Brian asked me to talk about joy, and um, whenever I get a chance to preach and teach and uh, just think about God's Word in a new way, um, I find it to be um, extremely beneficial and enriching. So this week, all week, I've kind of gotten to think about joy, and uh, it's been great. Um, noticing just the little things. Uh, I found myself this morning watching my son Judah play with our dog, um, Bailey, and he's just playing tug with her. And I was like, it's nice to be able to notice those small moments of joy in life, whereas so many times I think I miss them. Um, you know, uh, there's obviously those family joys. I mean, working out in the basement, my, young, my middle daughter or my oldest daughter, I guess, um, my middle kid, uh, comes down to the basement and works out with me a lot. And so she's 12. She's learned to uh, deadlift and um, do overhead presses and fun stuff like that. And uh, that's been joyful this week. Um, obviously, you can find joy in work and many other things. Um, but when I looked at it biblically, there were really three types of joy that I saw. These three moments of joy or rejoicing uh, that show up across the Bible. And they kind of break out just in really three simple things. There's joy because of the blessings of God. We see this a lot, uh, particularly in the Psalms or in the Old Testament, where God does something amazing for his people and they rejoice because of it. There's a lot of joy there. And whenever God's doing good things for us, right, and these tangible good things that we can see and we can feel and um, they, they tend to make our lives better and there's no struggle and there's lots of comfort, that's when joy is, is fairly simple um, in a lot of ways. Um, it's easy to rejoice when God is being so great to us. There's also joy anticipated in the midst of sorrow. And this is sort of a joy that's almost delayed. We know we're going to feel it at some point because we trust that God is going to deliver us at some point in the future. Uh, but really right now, we just can't muster that, that sense of rejoicing that we need. Um, because everything that we're, we're experiencing in the moment is so tumultuous and sad and lamentable. Um, and so that's the second type of joy. It's this anticipated joy. And then there's joy regardless of circumstances. And this is one that you really see mostly in the New Testament. Um, this is uh, things like um, Paul talking about being um, happy to suffer with Christ and share in the sufferings of Christ. And that joy comes in knowing that we are united with Christ in his suffering. And so despite the hard times or whatever circumstances we may happen to be going through, um, this is this moment where we can say, yes, I know I'm suffering as Christ suffered, and I can be happy and rejoice in that suffering. So those are really the three types of joy that we see across the Bible in in broad terms. Um, And I'll get into sort of uses of joy is sort of how I'll phrase it. So those three, those three types, and then there are various uses. The first is really joy is worship. Um, we know this, joy, rejoicing are very synonymous. And so we see this in the Psalms a lot. Psalm 32, 11, we have, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And we find numerous examples of that type of joy um, joy is a moment of rejoicing uh, across the Bible. Anytime we really see people in worship rejoicing over what God has done for them, that is an act and, and moment of joy as worship. But we also have uh, this sense of joy as 
Hold on just a second. <laughs> Where'd it go? Well, it is joy is an expression of trust. Um, and joy is an expression of trust comes really more things like James 1, 2 through 4, right? And so what James says is, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what we have there is this expression of trust in this moment of, uh, of joy, where James and Peter does something very similar with us. He's saying, even in the midst of suffering, you should be joyous. You should be excited about this suffering to some degree, knowing what it's going to produce in you. That there is joy in the fact that God is working on us and shaping us and, and sort of uh, fusing within us, forming within us um, the type of faith he wants us to have. And then there's the, the third type of joy, or the third function of joy, and this is the one that really comes out of Psalm 137, and it's what I call joy as defiance. This is a pretty unique um, use of joy uh, in either the Old or the New Testament. And as we go through this, what I think we'll find is that um, we'll begin to see some ways that maybe this type of joy um, can give us a, a different picture of what our worship is today, um, how we view the way that we rejoice and what rejoicing really says to the world around us. So I'm just going to read Psalm 137, and then we're going to stay here for the rest of the time. So by the rivers of Babylon, there we dwelled, yet we wept as we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in its mist we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors amusement. Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember, if I do not ascend to Jerusalem with joy upon my head. O Lord, remember the day of Jerusalem against the Edomites, the one who said, strip it, strip it to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you are doomed. Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And so, this is a psalm that, uh, that really expresses a different sort of use of joy. And it's this moment where Israel is in exile. The Babylonians have come in, they've sacked Jerusalem, they've taken the Israelites captive, they've moved many of them over into Babylon. And so now Israel is sitting by the rivers of Babylon. Switch my slide. They're sitting by the rivers of Babylon and they're being goaded to rejoice. Okay. And this is sort of interesting because when we're in Babylon, um, there's a sense in which we might conjure up the absolute worst possible situation ever to be in Babylon, right? Babylon as sort of hell on earth, right? But it wasn't necessarily that. I mean, it's bad to be in exile in a foreign land. It's not like the greatest situation in the world. But we shouldn't necessarily think of um, Israel being mistreated in any particular way. Babylon's uh, strategy, whenever they'd come in and defeat a nation, was to pull them out of their national context and bring them into a Babylonian world. So if we think about, let's say, Daniel, the book of Daniel, um, Daniel doesn't seem like he's in too rough a situation, right? Um, obviously, they're trying to curtail worship of Yahweh, which isn't a great thing, 
But he's not, you know, in the, in the brickyards like they were in Egypt. There isn't this sort of sense in which um, the Israelites are being pressed into hard labor. They're really just trying to be enculturated in with the Babylonians. And so this first line of the psalm, by the rivers of Babylon, there we dwelled, isn't intended to be sort of this horrible image, right, where we're in the worst place imaginable. I actually think it's intended to say, you know, the, the rivers of Babylon weren't bad, yet we wept as we remembered Zion. And so there's this sense in which Israel is uh, lamenting the fact that they are separated from Zion. And so what is Zion? Well, Zion is a symbol. Um, Zion's also a place. It's Jerusalem. It's the capital, the capital of Israel in many ways. But it becomes this symbol. It's a symbol of stability. It's a symbol of Israelite national identity. It's a symbol of uh, the presence of God. And we see this in something like Psalm 48, 1 through 3. Uh, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, that's Jerusalem. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And so here it is, this moment where they're in Babylon, they're separated from this place that is symbolic of all the security and all the refuge and all the protection that God provides. And so no matter what situation they're in in Babylon, it could be the greatest thing ever, right? I mean, the Babylonians could be giving um, God's people all the wealth in the world, and it could just be this wonderful situation, and yet they need to lament that they are not in Zion. Uh, Because not being in Zion is this this sort of, it it makes it impossible, really, for Israel to showcase um, God's wisdom by obeying his law, Uh, makes it impossible, uh, to some degree, to really worship him at the temple, which was very often in in the Old Testament the the most intimate place to worship God. And they're separated from all of that, so they're disappointed that they're in Babylon, and they're they're frustrated that they have to be here. And so um, rather than, you know, sort of express that um, frustration in in lament or in, in some sort of a hope, Uh, Israel seems to fall into a a despair and a depression. This second line of um, Psalm 137, where it talks about hanging up the lyre in the willows, the harp in the willows. Um, If you see in the background of each of these slides, that's a lyre. Um, Not a lyre, a lyre, like pants on fire, but a lyre like a harp. Right? And, and people would sit and play it. They would hold it similar to a harp. It's actually a little smaller, usually like you know, that size instead of really big, you know, sit-on-the-ground kind of harp. But David would all, was also almost or often viewed as playing this in worship to the Lord. And so this, this symbol of we're going to hang our lyres up in the willow trees, our harps are going to go up in the willow trees, what it's really saying is Israel is going to stop worshiping. They're weeping that they're not in Zion. They're sitting by the waters of Babylon, and they have no intention of worshiping at this point. They've given into their despair. They are, they are just going to just kind of sit there and weep and cry, and there is going to be no more worship. And so verse 2, Israel is sort of, we see the picture of Israel almost giving up. They're in exile, and they no longer want to worship the Lord. That's not a good thing. Um, we, we always want to be worshiping the Lord, and yet you can understand how Israel would just have this strong sense being separated from this place that they have viewed as so significant. What do we do now? 
And so they decide, well, we're just going to have to hang up our harps and ride this out. So in verse 3, what we really get uh, is an amazing gift from the Babylonians. Um, in Psalm 137.3, what we read is this. For there, are, for there, by the waters of Babylon, our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors amusement. Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. Israel's given up. The Babylonians come and in their mockery, taunting Israel, saying, why don't you sing us one of the songs of this supposed wonderful city where your God was supposed to secure you and you were supposed to be the light to the nations? Sing us one of those songs. That'd be fantastic. And it's this moment of humiliation that the Babylonians want to sort of pour over Israel. In my mind, I think the, that it's a reminder uh, to Israel that really what's going on here is um, Babylon wants to remind them of their superiority. Everything you thought would happen didn't happen. And so let's just sing one of your old happy songs and then look at your current situation. And let's remember that juxtaposition. You're now in Babylon. You're in exile. This is not your, your hope-for destination. And yet, here you are. So sing us a song of Zion, Israel. That'll be fantastic. And so Israel, instead of just sort of giving in to the, uh, the moment and saying, well, okay, I guess, uh, yeah, we maybe, I guess, um, Zion wasn't all we'd hoped it would be, and, and we're not going to realize God's promise, and so here's the song, Babylonians, whatever you want, that'll be great. Um, they don't do that. Um, the Israelites, this is where I think being a stiff-necked people and uh, stubborn and sort of hard-hearted, the way that Israel is described throughout the Old Testament, um, this is where that comes in handy. So uh, they are not only goaded to rejoice, but they're going to rejoice as an act of defiance. Um, rejoice as an act of resistance, right? And so they ask in verse 4, and this is variously translated, depending on what um, translation you're reading. Sometimes it's read as, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's almost like, is it possible for us to do this? Is it, is it at all possible for us to worship while we're in captive under the Babylonians? Um, I actually take it more as a tactic, right? It's a tactical statement. In other words, well, the Babylonians are asking us to sing, what song should it be? It's got like a little attitude to it. And so the Jews are going to sing this very particular song in response to the Babylonian mockery. And here's what they say. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, or let my right hand lose its skill. Um, probably a reference to playing the lyre in some way, playing the harp. Um, let the tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Again, sort of that reference to worship and praise. If I do not remember, if I do not ascend Jerusalem with joy upon my head. And so what they do in verses 5 and 6 is really interesting. They've gone from deep despair, weeping by the waters of, of Babylon, hanging up their harps and saying, forget worship. And then the Babylonians sort of poke the bear, right? And in their mockery and in their, their attempt to humiliate Israel, Israel says, We're not, we don't have to take this, right? We know who our God is. So what song do we sing? We're going to sing the one that reminds us that Jerusalem is coming that we're never going to forget Jerusalem, we're never going to forget Zion, and that if we do, we should never praise the Lord again. And so all this sort of comes full circle. We've hung up our harps, um, in, and we've kind of forgotten Jerusalem, 
and we've, we've given into our despair, and now in verses 5 and 6, it's, no, wait, if I don't remember Zion, that's when I shouldn't be praising, right? And so it's this act of defiance, this act of resistance against Babylon, and if you want to, sing, if you want to hear a song that we sing, this is the one we're going to pick. And so in the midst of the Babylonian exile, this is a song for Israel that becomes sort of paradigmatic. It becomes a, a, a way of remembering Jerusalem, remembering what God is ultimately going to bring them back to. And it's one of these, um, if we go back to our, our first slide, the three types of joy, I would sort of put this one in joy anticipated in the midst of sorrow. It's filled with hope in a lot of ways that God is going to bring Jerusalem back, that, uh, that he is going to have a place for Zion again, that Zion will truly be that place of stability, that the city of the great king has not been abandoned, uh, not forever. And so in remembering that song, or in remembering that city, the Israelites can sort of sing this song in memory of Jerusalem and remind themselves that God is going to come back that moment for them. So they've gone from no worship to sort of a defiant worship that reminds them that they are not here forever. And then we move into sort of the last um, few lines of this. And the last few lines of Psalm 137, uh, as I got into this, uh, researching this passage and this psalm, um, I I read a lot of commentators that say people usually don't uh, deal, even in commentaries and more scholarly works, they don't deal with the last few verses of 137 because they seem really harsh. Um, And so uh, I'd love to say, hey, stick with me on these, Um, but I think it's more, hey, um, stick with the psalmist on this. Um, And I'll try to help explain why it is that the Israelites are going to talk like this at the end of the psalm. Um, but it is, a, it, it is really quite um, challenging language in a lot of ways. So verse 7, Israel is going to remember, again, this whole theme of remembrance through this. They've forgotten in the first couple of verses. They've sung a song of praise to remember in the, in the middle part of the, part of the psalm, and now they're going to finish the psalm out with a memory of what God has done to those who come against Jerusalem. So verse 7, they're going to reference the Edomites. And this whole thing of, of the Edomites are the ones who said, strip it, strip it to the foundations. It's a reference to the city of God. And what they want is they want the city of God completely just done and abolished. Let's get rid of it completely. Um, but, and it doesn't say it in the psalm, but everybody sort of knows what happens to the Edomites. They end up losing, right? Um, every enemy that comes against God ends up losing. This is not good for the Edomites, right? It's not a, hey, remember that great time when the Edomites said, strip it, strip it to its foundations, and then God really blessed them? It's not that. It's intended to be a reminder that God has dealt with Babylonian-type folks in the past and that they always lose. And so then as it moves to verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, you are doomed. This is Israel now again coming off of their worship and saying, we know what is going to happen. We know, right? We can have joy anticipated in the midst of our suffering because we know it is not going to stay like this forever. Babylon is not going to triumph. They don't win in the end. And so there's no reason for us to be too, too worried about this. 
And then what we have in verse 9, which is a really difficult part, um, blessed shall be, blessed, well, it's hard to read, um, blessed shall he be who, repl- who repays you with what you have done to us. So in war in ancient Israel, um, in, in really in the ancient Near East, it would happen in a few different ways. But the military practices back then ranged from epically brutal um, to just more epically brutal. Um, these were not times when you wanted to be in war with folks. Many times when, they would, when a, a warring nation would come in and they would capture another nation, they, they couldn't sustain both nations, right? There had to be a, a culling of people out of the defeated nation. It had to happen. Um, and the, the nation that came in would generally... Um, want to keep some of the strongest, though not too strong, they don't want a rebellion on their hands, but they would tend to move out the, the people in the society that had the least opportunity to help them produce on a national level. And that often meant the children, it often meant the crippled, the lame, it often meant you know folks who just could not, quote-unquote, contribute productively to society. And that's what we see in this final line of the psalm. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Israel is um, calling down on Babylon. What they're basically saying is, we want Babylon to be conquered again. right? We want another nation to come in and do to Babylon what Babylon did to us. Not in a retributive sense. Um, Not in a... um, you know, we hate Babylon, and so we need to have this done or anything like that. But more in the sense of we know that God's deliverance will come through this sort of national overturning. And so what has to start happening is we want to look ahead to the one who's going to be blessed to take care of Babylon. We see this a lot in the Old Testament um, when we look at uh, the way that, let's say, Cyrus of Persia has talked about in Isaiah He's actually called a Messiah. Um, And so when Cyrus comes in and defeats the Babylonians, he becomes God's anointed to do that. And as he's taking over the Babylonian sort of world, he does good things for the Jews along the way. He's the one who's going to let them go back and build the walls of Jerusalem. He's the one who's going to let them go back and and sort of take care of the the city of Zion. Um, But he is viewed as blessed in many ways, right? And really, he's just another warring foreign king who Israel doesn't ultimately want to be under, but they recognize that this is God's instrument to get them out of the situation they were currently in. And so what we see in this psalm, really, is um, in the beginning, that despair, a moment of mockery that drives Israel toward joy and rejoicing in the face of that mockery, really reignites a passion for the Lord through that mockery, right? And then what we see then is an expression of, or an anticipation really, of hope and a recognition that God is not going to leave this situation the way it has been uh, up to this point, that Babylon is truly doomed and that Israel's praise will not be wasted. So a deep remembrance of Jerusalem, a deep remembrance of what God has promised, a deep remembrance of God's willingness to act on their behalf and a trust that God is going to come and do uh, all that he is going to do 
for the Israelites. And so when I look at, at Psalm 137, this is what I think. Uh, I think we need to embrace joy in some ways as an act of defiance and resistance as we wait for the Lord to set all things right. Now, that's obviously not the only thing joy does. Like I said at the beginning, joy is worship, right? Um, joy is an act of trust and it's an expression of trust as we go through suffering. But I think this is one that we need to um, really kind of hold on to. Um, as the things of this world sort of pile in on us, and as we as Christians and as the church are pressed um, to either change or um, you know, sort of compromise our beliefs, as we as Christians are, are asked to um, sing praises to our God and are mocked by the world um, as the Israelites are mocked by the Babylonians, joy and rejoicing becomes an act of resistance to that. We don't need to get stuck in despair. Um, joy becomes sort of a spiritual weapon that we can use to fight back against those who are trying to hurt us, who are trying to um, curtail who we are as believers, who are trying to mock our God. And the, the worship of God is a powerful reminder, not only for us, but also to the world, that we are aliens and strangers here. Um, we do odd things, and worship is one of them. And so as we, as we think through this psalm, as we think through um, what it means for us, I would just suggest that um, whenever we worship, we remember that we are doing something that is so strange in the eyes of the world, right? To take time out on a Sunday at 1.30 in the afternoon, um, wearing masks and, uh, you know, social distancing, and taking time to worship the Lord is a strange thing. It's not normal. Um, it's not bad. It's just not normal. And it's not what most people do. It's an act of resistance. It's one thing that we do as we come together to say that we are not being conformed by this world, but our minds are being transformed in the image of Christ. So that's, uh, that's sort of Psalm 137 for me. It's a fun one for me um, because it, it is so odd and it's such a different lesson about joy, I think, than many of the, the passages that I looked at uh, offered. And... Uh, you know, be honest, I, there's something in me that sort of resonates with joy more as an act of defiance and as resistance um, than as just an act of worship. Um, so let me pray us out, and, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll do some more joyous rejoicing in worship. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these amazing texts that you leave for us to remember you, uh, to remember your promises, to remember where you're really going to take us. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would not let us surrender to despair, ever, uh, no matter what happens, uh, that we wouldn't hang our harps up on the willow trees, and that the mockery of the world, uh, we wouldn't need it. We wouldn't need the mockery of the world to worship you. Um, help us to be a people who are joyous and who rejoice in you, no matter what our circumstances are. Um, obviously, we know that you teach us in the New Testament that you know, we share in Christ's sufferings, and that is a joyous thing. But ultimately, Lord, um, times can be tough, 
and it's easy to forget that we should be praising and rejoicing and have joy in you. So Lord, just help us remember that in our joy, we are really resisting the world. And uh, in our worship, we are, we are defying the powers that be that sort of surround us. And we're breaking through and we're proclaiming your sovereignty. And we're uh, reminding ourselves, as well as declaring to the world, that you are in charge and that uh, your wisdom is the wisdom worth following. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.